Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, the 1906 Potato Masher murder of Cecilia Ludwig. When the fire department comes to the house, and again, we're going to talk about the other side of the story, but when a fire department comes to the house, the closet door is closed. There's a rocking chair in front of the closet door. Cecilia's charred body, nude charred body, is inside the closet the fire chief says she looked like a half-baked chicken i mean that's that's terrible and how could you have a fire to that degree with so little oxygen in a five by eight closet without some accelerant Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here. Just as a reminder, if you want to listen to the Most Notorious Podcast ad-free, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. Okay, on with the show, and it's a great one. I am very excited to have as my guest today, Gary Susnicki. He worked at newspapers in four states during his 43-year career, and he has won dozens of awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Weekly Newspaper Editors. And he is here to talk about his new book called The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband. Great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me, Eric. Yes, of course. So you have a very personal connection to this story, don't you? I do. The victim was my great-grandmother. And um, this was something that that growing up I heard very little about, just cryptically when I did hear something about it. And my brother and I have talked about this. We just didn't know very much about, about the murder other than we knew that our great grandmother was murdered, and uh, uh, and it's something that I became more and more curious about as I grew older. And uh, at a certain point, I decided, hey, it's time to look into this. And you certainly did. Uh, you wrote an entire book about it. So, having had two Norwegian grandmothers, I am very familiar with potato mashers. <laughs> but for someone who may not be. Can you explain what a potato masher is and what it looked like specifically in the early 20th century? They were a a wooden kitchen tool, and they came in many different shapes, but they were used, of course, to to mash potatoes in the in the pot. But they they some of them were cylindrical. Uh, Some of them had a bell shaped wooden carving at the at the end of them. I, I, I use one description in the book where it's like a, a the knob end of a baseball bat cut off. And if, if a potato masher of, of that 
that vintage wooden potato masher was swung like a like a mallet or uh, a police baton, you know, it could be a deadly weapon. And in the case of my great grandmother's murder, it it was used to commit a murder. But there's a lot of questions that we don't know who swung the potato masher first, but it definitely was used as part of her death. So if you don't mind, let's start with Cecilia Henderson, your great-grandmother. Who was she, and how did she find herself married to Elbin Ludwig? Cecilia was was born in Scotland along with with, uh, her sisters, and uh, her her parents emigrated to the United States, left Scotland. Uh, Times were hard in Scotland, and arrived first in Chicago— and then found their way to LaPorte County, Indiana, a little town named Kingsbury, which is all oh, about a dozen miles south of LaPorte, Indiana. And and just as an aside, uh, LaPorte, Indiana is famous in a very major murder, uh, the uh, Bell Gunness murders, a uh, serial killer. And I know you've interviewed uh, Harold Schechter about his book on the, on the Bell Gunness murders. So they settled in Kingsbury. And they farmed there. Cecilia married the first time. She was 15 years old and seven months pregnant when when she was married to my great grandfather, who would who would be uh, Charlie Hornberg. And uh, you know that's that's not a very good start to a, to a marriage when you're 15 years old and and seven months pregnant. But so be it. They they had the a son who was uh, my grandpa William Hornberg. And and uh, two years later, they had a daughter, Lyle. And uh, seven months after Lyle's birth, Cecilia filed for divorce. She she left the house, filed for divorce, and charged cruel and inhumane treatment. Charlie Hornberg was accused of striking her with a, a steel, probably a steel rod, holding a, a gun to her to her head. There were various things uh, of cruel and inhumane treatment that, that Cecilia had to endure, so she left. And there was a divorce, and the divorce was final, I think, in, in 1896. And Cecilia had custody of the little girl who was an infant. And uh, my, gr- my grandpa, uh, William, and I think he was known as Willie as a kid, he went to live with, with his father. So Cecilia, she had, she had three sisters. And uh, she hung around with with them. In one case, uh, a one census report, Cecilia was uh, living at a, at a home where her sister was a a domestic. At at some point, she found her way two counties over to Elkhart County, Indiana. And these counties that we're talking about in Indiana are the in the northern tier of counties. Um, they all border all border Michigan. So we're, really, there's three counties that are important to this story. The Laporte County, where the Hendersons are from, and uh, St. Joseph County in the middle, where, where the murder occurred and where the trial was held. And then Elkhart County over on, on the east side. So she found herself to Elkhart County, and she was working as a domestic for a Reverend Townsend. Now, at some point, while, while working as a domestic, she met a man named Alban Ludwig. Alban Ludwig's family had come from Germany, and they had settled in in Elkhart County about the same time that the Henderson family had settled in in Laporte County. And uh, Alban Ludwig, he'd worked as a teamster for the the city of Elkhart. Uh, about 1901, he opened a saloon called the Mon- Monument Saloon, and it was in the 100 block of of south main street in elkhart so it was it was right downtown it was called the monument saloon because of a uh civil war monument that was just a few blocks away i'm not sure how they met it doesn't seem to me likely that that cecilia would have walked into a a tavern about 1901 but alvin claimed to be a good church worker so perhaps perhaps they they met in church so they fell in love and they got married and initially they moved in with Alban's widowed mother and that didn't last real long 
Cecilia was accused of striking Albans' mother, and then about 10 days later of striking Albans' um, sister-in-law, the, the wife of Albans' uh, brother Gustav. And they got thrown out of the house. So that's not a, that's not a too good a start for a marriage. So they wound up in a, I think they, they either bought or rented a home, and I think they bought another home in Elkhart. But Alban was trying to unload the saloon, and eventually he either sold or closed the saloon, and they moved to Mishawaka for a fresh start. Mishawaka, Indiana is, uh, uh, today you'd say it's a sister city to South Bend, and I think we all know where South Bend is because of Notre Dame. So Mishawaka is just east, east of South Bend, and the two towns have grown together now, and that sets the stage for the murder. So Elbin Ludwig, you write in your book that in his younger years, uh, he was kind of a quiet guy, but after owning a saloon, it changed his disposition, made him a little meaner, angrier, right? Yeah, I, I don't think he was cut out to be a businessman. and. He he stayed pretty much on the on the right side of the law, but he did get accused once of, of selling to minors and so forth. He had to pay some fines, and he he had a uh, someone working for him who uh, he sent him to the bank to with some money, and I think the the guy who spent the spent the money at a at another bar and so forth. So I'm I'm sure he was frustrated in business. And, and he he tried to unload it to to uh, someone else. Um, at some point he did, and the the couple moved to Mishawaka. And interestingly, Gustav, the brother, never visited them just 12, 13 miles away in, in Mishawaka during the time that they were living there until after the murder. And they made an interesting look, looking couple. He was around... Five foot seven, which at the time was was pretty average. Yeah, and Cecilia was about three inches taller. She was she was a tall girl. All of the Henderson girls were tall, and and their father was was something like six foot seven himself. He he was a big man, and and the mother wasn't short from what what I've been able to find out from these distant cousins who I've discovered during this writing process. So so they were big, and and Cecilia was tall. Um, and Cecilia also was was a big girl, big boned. She weighed about 165 pounds. When when you see her her photo, uh, and there is one existing photo of of Cecilia that we turned up. She's an attractive woman for for that period, um, but she's tall and uh, and big. It's interesting. He, he claimed whenever asked that he was that he was deeply in love with her, but there were numerous accounts of of abuse throughout yes. your book. Um, this couple had a deeply volatile relationship, didn't they? They, they did. They both had ferocious tempers. And I, I, I warn folks, there are no heroes in this book because they were both flawed, flawed people, flawed characters. They both had tempers. Both of them used uh, foul language. There, there's evidence that both of them threatened to kill the other one at, at various times. Cecilia had been heard at, at various times saying that, that she, she was going to poison him or um, she was going to knock his block off at some point. And just a week and a half before the murder, Alban told his mother-in-law that if, if Cecilia ever left him, uh, he would kill her. So, you know, this, this wasn't a surprise to, to people that, to neighbors that that this what happened actually happened. So sometime in late August, early September, Cecilia's sister Jean and her two children moved into the house, which probably didn't do much to calm the situation. Right. Her younger sister Jean moved in to the house during the summer and brought along two kids. And uh, the kids were young. I think the little boy was was six. And I think the little girl was nine or ten. And Jean was supposed to pay ten dollars a month rent to stay with them, which which never happened. Now, Jean was similar to Cecilia. Um, she left her husband in Nevada. He was a mining engineer 
and uh, worked for various companies in California and, and Nevada, uh, mining for gold. And, and she took off. She, she was a bit of a, a runaround too. And Cecilia had a reputation as a, as a runaround. But Jean moved into the house and Jean and Cecilia took off almost every day, um, shopping, uh, gallivanting around town. Uh, gadding about was one of the terms that, that came up. And Alvin was upset. First, Alvin said, you're leaving all the time, but I'm not getting to go with you. And that, that upset him that his wife would want to go out all the time, but he couldn't go with. It was just, uh, Cecilia and Jean. And, and then there was, there was a man involved, a man by the name of Fred Young. Fred also came from Kingsbury. He, he was a widower and they met Fred one day in Mishawaka. He had come to Mishawaka after his wife died, got work there. Well, Fred started hanging around at the house, coming over for dinner and just, just being a frequent visitor. And Albin thought that Fred had a thing for Cecilia. Uh, Albin was, was a terribly jealous sort and he thought that there was something going on between Fred and Cecilia. I think in truth, what was going on, it was going on between Fred and uh, Jean, who Fred referred to as Mrs. Ellsworth, Jean Ellsworth. And I think there was something going on between the two of them, but it made Albin really jealous. And, and this, this came to a head on uh, the evening of September 24th, 1906. Jean and Cecilia had been gone all afternoon shopping for shoes and came home and fixed dinner. And the three, well, they all had dinner, the kids and, and, uh, and Elwin, and, and they had dinner. And then Cecilia and, and, and Jean went out again and this irritated Albin. He, they said they were going to the drugstore, but Albin, Albin was, was very suspicious. So he followed them. Well, yeah, they went to the drugstore and they refilled a bottle of, of iodine and glycerin, which, um, is a poison. Supposedly Cecilia used it to treat her sore feet, but it is a poison if ingested, which comes up later in the story. But then instead of coming back home, they went to downtown Mishawaka. Now that's across the St. Joseph River. It's about a 15 minute walk from the, from the house. And, uh, Albin, Albin followed them. He wanted to see where they were going. So they wound up, the women wound up at the, what was called the four corners of Mishawaka. It be, would be South Main Street, uh, south of the river. So South Main Street and Second Street. And, uh, for people who are familiar with Mishawaka now, that's called Lincoln Way. So they're at the four corners. And Alvin is standing in front of the Milburn House, which is a, a tavern and hotel. So Alvin was standing there and he watched the women. He saw the women peek into a saloon through a window, a uh, saloon on the northeast corner of the, of the intersection. And then they walked across the street in front of a drugstore, uh, the A.P. Graham uh, Southside Drugstore. And there they ran into a man. It was not Fred Young. It was a man by the name of Ackerman. His first name was lost to history. So they were talking to this man. So Alman, as jealous as he was, he walked up to the corner to see better. And there was a policeman at the corner by the name of, of James Anderson. He was a patrolman for, for Mishawaka Police Department. And Albin asked the patrolman, he said, do you know who those women are? And, uh, he, well, this is dusk now, so the patrolman couldn't see. So he walked in the middle of the intersection or maybe three quarters of the way across the intersection. And then he came back and said, well, that, that's your wife and her sister. I see them around town all the time, which I'm sure that uh, Albin in his mind was thinking, yeah, I bet you do. Uh, so Albin said something to the effect that I wanted you to see them just in case something happens, which you know was kind of a prediction that something was going to happen. Well, the, the women left the corner and with Ackerman, who Alvin referred to as the bridge man because he, the guy worked on the Mishawaka Bridge, they walked up a, a block or so to a boarding house 
And that boarding house is where Fred Young lived. And uh, Ackerman went in and, and got Fred Young out. And then Ackerman took off. So, so you've got uh, Fred Young and the two women. And they start walking back to East Marion Street to the uh, Ludwig home. And again, that's a 15-minute walk. So you've got two married women, both who are having marital problems, and and this this young guy, uh, a widower, uh, the three of them walking back to the house. They get back to the house, and the quarrels start because Alvin is back to the house by this time. They have an argument outside. They they have an argument inside, and Alvin does not seem to be as mad at Fred during this evening as he is at at Cecilia. The the arguments stop. They start. Alvin goes and talks to neighbors, and he kind of blows off some steam talking to neighbors. But th- this goes on to 11 o'clock at night, and um, there's sort of a decision that Jean and Cecilia are both going to leave the next day. Cecilia is going to leave leave the marriage, uh, at least temporarily, and Jean is going to leave what I'm sure is a, to her is a, a pretty toxic uh, toxic place to be hanging out. And that all sets the scene for what happens on the next day. During the time when Elbin is spying on Cecilia from across the street, she gets hit by a brick suddenly, doesn't she? Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting. She, she suspects that Elbin has thrown the brick. And somehow there's a dog that barks at the same time or uh, close to the time that she's hit by the brick. And she says... Oh, that, that, that sounds like our dog. And, and, you know, this, this dog, I can't believe that this dog would have followed Alvin 15 minutes across the river and everything, but there's, there's no other indication that the dog was involved. But she is hit by this brick. Uh, it comes from between two buildings and Alvin's, Alvin denies that he threw the brick. Uh, it hits her on the hip. She it hurts her a little bit, but not enough that she can't walk home, and it, it doesn't really come up a, again uh, the subject. But but somebody threw a brick, and I guess it, it if if it wasn't an accident from somewhere else, it, it had to have been Elvin who threw the brick, which wouldn't have likely surprised her because she had been beaten by Elvin before, right? She she had been yes. There was one incident where. Even when they were in Elkhart, where I, I, I think he was accused of, of having her on the floor choking her. And, and there's, there's, there's no excuse for beating a, a, a spouse. But you have to realize that, that Cecilia was flirtatious and probably promiscuous. Um, it, was, it was not a good marriage. You know, I think you, you, you saw in the book that Alvin came home from work one morning and he, he cites that exact date. Every time this comes up, he knows the exact date. It was in 1903 when she comes, he comes home from, from work early one morning because he forgot his, his, uh, well, today we'd say his watch. Uh, he probably was probably a, a pocket watch that he forgot. And, uh, he, he goes into the house and he can't find Cecilia. He, her clothes are, are on the bed. But he eventually finds Cecilia in a bedroom on the opposite corner of the house, and she's hiding in a closet with a boarder. They had a boarder in the house by the name of Smoke Minin, and and the two of them are hiding in a closet. Now, the fact that her her clothes were on the bed leads some to me to some suspicion that perhaps they were not dressed in that closet. That that never comes up, but it's it's kind of implied. So that that's one incident. Then there's another incident where where Alvin comes home from work one day about 4:30 in the afternoon and uh, uh opens the door and they're sitting on the on the sofa uh Cecilia is sitting on the sofa and there's a traveling salesman who's sitting uh on her lap. And you think of that well that's that seems odd but on the other hand Cecilia is a big girl and and uh, a, a small man could be sitting on her lap. Um, so uh, Cecilia has had a habit of taking off and going to South Bend and staying at South Bend for a week or two at a time. So obviously, Elbin may have been in love with Cecilia, 
But there's a question about how much in, in love with Albin Cecilia was. With a her- horrific history of abuse from both her husbands, how do you feel about that, uh, being her great-grandson? You know, it, I guess I knew this, but it surprised me when I started doing some research and realized that wife-beating was legal in, in many parts of the country until about the 1870s. And even after that, folks kind of looked the other way when a, a wife was, was beaten. And, and, that, and that's just a, a terrible thing. But but it happened. And I think one of the, the lessons, I think, in, in the book is, you know, there, there was domestic violence back then. And this is a case of extreme domestic violence. But there probably was no nowhere for Cecilia to turn, even if if she had wanted to do something about it. There was no place for her to turn where there is today. There are agencies that you can go to in the town where I live, the town of 14,000. There's a there's a very active agency where where spouses can go when there's there's a problem. Cecilia probably didn't have that option. And the fact that Jean was living with her and witnessing this this toxic relationship, Jean was really her way out, wasn't she? Well, Jean, Jean was her way out. Jean, was, Jean gave her someone that she could hang around with every day. And, of course, they, they grew up together, and I'm, I'm sure they hung out together. Uh, Jean was a little bit younger, and they hung out together as, as kids. So, yeah, when, when Jean decided to leave and, and Cecilia was going to leave, too, and that, that created some of the quarreling on the day of the murder. Yeah, the, the day of the murder. Uh, a lot of strange things happened um, before the murder. Yeah, he's working at this at this point at a shoe factory. That's right. And suddenly, suspiciously, he decides not to go to work that day. Yeah, and he slept till nine o'clock too, which which surprises me. If things were as tense as they were the night before, and if if they were still quarreling at eleven o'clock the night before, and uh, a neighbor still heard the women talking to each other at at midnight. Uh, the night before, and Alvin is able to sleep to nine o'clock in the morning. I, I don't know he's he's got a had a stronger constitution than than I have. I, I would have been I would have been up half the night after a night like that. So he sleeps to nine o'clock in the in the morning, and he's he's somewhat miffed that Cecilia didn't make breakfast for him. Although it comes out later that Cecilia hadn't made breakfast for him for for a, the past year. So. Alvin goes downstairs and uh, and reads the newspaper, and there is there is some quarreling, but it's it's not real strong at at that point. Uh, Cecilia says, "Well, I would leave if I had a trunk to pack in," and Alvin says, "Well, I'll give you a give you a a trunk." So Alvin gets a trunk for her, but over the course of the morning, Alvin says, "You know, I really don't want you to leave." If you just want to go to South Bend like you normally do for a week or so, you know, that's, that's fine. But if you're leaving and, and, you, and I'll, I would welcome you back, which, of course, I find kind of strange, but I, I would welcome you back. But if you're leaving permanently, you know, I'm going to I'm going to let the house go. You know, he was he was paying, making mortgage payments on this this house. And this was a brand new neighborhood that they, they moved into. So he was making mortgage payments on the house, and and I don't think they owned all the furniture. I think they were making payments on the furniture, too. So he was just going to let all that go. And that then created friction in in what Cecilia wanted if she left, if, if they divorced. Cecilia wanted everything. And Albin said, and, and, and by, by everything I mean all of the property, and Albin was was only offering half. He said, no, you, you, you get half if you leave. So they had arguments about the division of property during during the morning. Well, at a certain point in the morning, Cecilia and Jean decide, well, they need to cook some. They're, they're leaving. They're, they're, they're packing. They need to prepare dinner, which is a noon meal. And uh, uh, Jean says, well, I need to go find a livery to, to take our trunks, pick up our trunks. So she leaves just before they eat. 
And and meanwhile, Cecilia sends Albin on, a, on an errand. They're using a gasoline cook stove. And gasoline cook stoves were, were very common in, in that era. And, and that, that just fascinates me. Um, the gasoline that was, was used in, in cook stoves, as, as we think of gasoline now, how dangerous that would be to be lighting it. But she sends Albon to get some gasoline, and he goes to the grocery store to buy two gallons of gasoline. He stops and buys a, uh, a bottle of uh, brandy or whiskey. I wasn't real sure what – no one could decide what it was. It was brandy or whiskey, but he buys a bottle of that too. He comes back, and – Cecilia, Cecilia cooks, cooks dinner. Uh, they're having a dinner of, uh, uh, boiled meat and, uh, and potatoes. Uh, boiled meat was, uh, a common, common meal back then. So they sit down at the, at the dinner table and it would be Albin and Cecilia and Jean's two children. And this is the point where the story there's two versions of this story. One version is the prosecution story, and one is the defense story. So according to Albin, he is served a cup of coffee by Cecilia, and he immediately notices a strange taste. It's bitter, yeah. And, and he, uh, he doesn't eat very much uh, of the meal, but the coffee tastes bitter. And, and, and she brings the cup of coffee. She doesn't bring a coffee pot, but just the cup for him. So they have finished the, the meal. Now this is, this is Albin's story now. And so we're, we're, the stories start to diverge at this point. So Albin feels sick to his stomach. He goes and, and sits on the front step of the porch for a few minutes. And there are witnesses. There's some, some tradesmen who are working on a on a new a new home around the corner, and uh, and people see him sitting there, and he looks kind of despondent, but he doesn't feel good. His stomach's up is upset, so I mean it's it's possible that he was poisoned. On the other hand, he has enormous stress going on, and and you know it's also possible he's just sick to his stomach from from stress, but he's sick to his sick to his stomach. While he's sitting on the porch, the kids, uh, Jean's kids, uh, want to go get some candy. And Cecilia hollers, well, don't be stingy. Give them a nickel or whatever. So to Penny to go go get candy. So that gets the, the kids out of the house. So Albin then gets up and, and he goes into the backyard to fetch uh, a slop jar, or which uh, also went by the name of chamber pot. And uh, so he fetches this because he's sick to his stomach and he both he feels like he's going to, to defecate and, and throw up. And he takes this upstairs and puts this in the closet right off the bedroom and he lays down on the bed. Now, that is one version of the story up to a certain point. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And then as he is wondering what's happening, he suddenly starts thinking about his life insurance policy. <laughs> and he's wondering in his head whether Cecilia has poisoned him. And um, then suddenly he, he makes it his mission to find that policy with the intent to quickly change the, the beneficiary before he, he dies. Right, because he was going to leave the money to his mother. So he, he, he looks at the dresser and the policy isn't there. So then he decides, well, I'm going to look in this trunk. So he goes into this walk-in closet where the trunk is. And this closet is about five feet by, by seven feet. You know, it's a pretty good, pretty good sized closet. So this closet is off the bedroom. And he goes in there and there's, there's, there's no window in there. And, and again, there's, there's no electricity in the closet. So he, he carries a kerosene lamp with him. And he starts going through the trunk. Now, again, this is Alvin's side of the story. And we'll get into, we'll get into the other side of the story here in a few minutes, I'm sure. But Alvin's going through the trunk looking for the insurance policy. Well, Cecilia comes upstairs and, uh, Cecilia is carrying a potato masher. Again, we're talking about a wooden potato masher, a, a mallet, a, a you know, like something that's got some substance. So um, she's carrying it and she says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm looking for the insurance policy. And she says, you son of a bitch. And uh, she said, follows up and says, have you decided about the property? Well, you, you get half. And she says, I want it all. And he says, well, only a court will give you all. And she says, you goddamn son of a bitch. And she takes the potato masher and swings at him. Again, this is Elbin's side of the story. She swings at him with the potato masher. Elbin grabs the potato masher, wards off the blow. The potato masher drops to the floor, and he grabs Cecilia by the neck. And he pushes Cecilia against the closet wall. Well, there are, there are wire hooks in, in the wall where, where you would hang clothes. And I remember from going to my grandparents' house as, as a kid, there would be these wire hooks. And you don't see them too often now. So he jams her head against this wire hook. Now, according to Albin's lawyers, that's what caused the wound in, in Cecilia's head. Not a potato masher, but the wire hook. But he does choke her. And she collapses. Of course, he, he later on, he says, well, she had a weak heart, which is a whole different story. But she collapses. Now, Alvin, Alvin tells this story over and over again, and it never changes. But he doesn't remember anything from this point. At least he says he doesn't remember anything at this point. She falls to the floor. 
but somehow she catches on fire. The, the lawyers, his lawyers, will say, okay, the kerosene lantern fell, and that's what set her on fire. But when the fire department comes to the house, and again, we're going to talk about the other side of the story, but when a fire department comes to the house, the closet door is closed. There's a rocking chair in front of the closet door. Cecilia's charred body, nude charred body, is inside the closet. The fire chief says she looked like a half-baked chicken. I mean, that's, that's terrible. And how could you have a fire to that degree with so little oxygen in a five-by-eight closet without some accelerant? And then we get to the prosecution side of the story. Right. So uh, Gene's boy, um, his name is Charles, right? Yes. Yeah. He's sent out to get some candy, and he's due back at the house at, at, at some point. Um, his, his role in this becomes very important, right, at, at a certain point in the story. Well, yeah, and, and both kids supposedly were, were sent out for the candy. But according to the next-door neighbor, uh, next-door neighbor sees smoke coming out of the west window upstairs, which would be the bedroom's west west window. And she goes to the back door, and the little boy is in the house. And the, the little boy is aware there's been a, there's been a terrible quarrel, but but he isn't aware of, or at least he doesn't say what actually is going on other than there's there's been a fight. And different newspapers reported different things from the little, little boy. But he is the only possible witness. And, of course, he's only, he's only five or six years old. I'm not sure if he had turned six yet or if it was six who hadn't turned seven yet. But, but he, he is in the house while all this is going on. So neighbors see smoke. Fire department is called. The fire department is called. They enter the house and they see something extremely gruesome upon their arrival, right? They, they do. They, they, fire department comes and plus you already have neighbors who, who have come in and I'll refer to them as, as rescuers. And the, the front door is locked. So there's construction work going on around the corner. So they grab a ladder from this construction site and they put it on top of the, uh, uh, they put it against the porch. The porch has a roof and they climb up on that roof and they, they go through the windows and, uh, uh, they get through the windows and they find Albin Ludwig laying in a pool of blood, uh, next to the bed. There's blood on the bed. There's blood on the floor. Albin is cut. Uh, on the throat, he's cut on his arms, he's cut on his legs. One of the cuts on his legs is is three inches deep, and he is unconscious. At least everyone thinks he's unconscious. There's some question about whether he was really unconscious. So that's the very first thing they see. There's there's smoke, but they see this 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 guy who is is all bloodied up on the floor. So. They come in and they've got to fight the fire too, and they they look around and, it, and they discover that the fire actually is coming from this closet. So they move this chair and some other obstacles from in front of the of the closet and uh, open the closet door and start aiming a, a hose at the at the ceiling because it's licking the ceiling is actually coming coming out the uh, the sides of the closet door and and uh, looking at at a dresser and and after it's at that point where they're starting to fight the fire in the closet that they see on the floor there is this body and it's of a woman and her clothes are burned off so you've got the second gruesome sight and if if the first sight wasn't gruesome enough then you've got this sight of this woman um, the jewelry is, is partially melted. The only clothing that is still on her, there's some metal stays from her corset, and that, that's it. So you've got a, you got a pretty gruesome scene here, and as well as you have, you've got uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the neighborhood is, is running through this scene, too. 
Um, so it's certainly not a secure scene, and, and that to, to me that leads some questions uh, as part of the investigation later on. Yeah, for sure. So local newspapers jump on this story immediately, and their assumption right off the bat is that Elbin murdered his wife, and then he tried to kill himself, right? Right. And and um, I, I want to speak about the newspapers first, since I spent 43 years in, in the newspaper business. Every town, every city there had two newspapers. Mishawaka had a smaller town, had two weekly newspapers, but South Bend had two daily newspapers. Elkhart had two daily newspapers. Laporte had two daily newspapers. And every one of them jumped on this story because they all had a, a tie to this story. Laporte, because, um, you know, Kingsbury girl, victim of, of vicious, horrible murder, and Elkhart, uh, Elkhart man uh, accused of, of this murder. And I, I was fascinated, Eric, by, by the fact that these afternoon newspapers, this happened between 1.30 and 2.30 in the afternoon, and it still made the afternoon newspapers. And, and that just, being a newspaper guy, that just fascinated me that it was on the front page of both of the South Bend newspapers that afternoon. Yeah, definitely. So, Elbin Ludwig is taken to the hospital. Right. And while they still continue to investigate the scene of the crime, the assumption is that there probably won't be a need for a trial because Ludwig is likely to die. Yeah. One day, he's getting worse. Um, they think he's going to have gangrene. But the newspapers, you know, a competitive situation too. The newspapers, you get different stories. One newspaper would say he may not live through the day or through the night, and the other newspaper says he's getting better. But he was he was sick for a, a long time. Now, most of these wounds, the the razor wounds, were superficial, but he did have a a three inch. He had a wound to his calf that went three inches deep, and it it didn't hit the bone, but it came close to the bone. And that, that's a, a pretty serious wound. Plus, we talked about the uh, iodine and glycerin. Uh, we talked about the coffee, which may or may not have been poisoned. But it's it's pretty evident that Albin drank poison at some point. Whether it was in the coffee or whether he went to Cecilia's dresser and got that bottle of iodine and glycerin and drank that as part of a suicide attempt, because Alvin had some pretty serious throat injuries, too. And he vomited a, a few times afterwards, after the after the rescuers came. So uh, you've got all kinds of, of possibilities here. Yeah. Uh, one of the facts that I found quite remarkable is is that Elbin's brother Gustav was was allowed into the house and a lot of people were allowed in the house which which was pretty crazy even the reporter the reporters were in the house and i'm i'm thinking the only time i ever got into a burning house was in a in a small town they needed help getting the furniture out and so i you know that that that's something there there was no yellow tape but gustav is in the house he's in the house with the with the police chief with his wife, with the police chief's wife, with uh, with some some relative of the police chief, they're in the house just a few days later, and then after that, Gustav is the one. The brother is the one who sweeps out the debris from the closet. Well, can you imagine that today? The brother of the of the suspected murderer cleaning out the closet within a couple weeks of of the murder. And he finds broken glass from the kerosene lantern, or at least that's what he claims it is, broken glass for the kerosene lantern, which is introduced in the trial as evidence that Elbin's story is, is, the, is the correct story. So uh, that, that just fascinates me. And, and, of course, Gustav wound up in prison at the same time as, as Elbin, which, which is uh, something we talk about in the appendix of the book. Right, right. So everyone thinks Elbin is going to die, but he recovers. And Elbin realizes that he doesn't want to die anymore. He wants to live. So everything changes, and prosecutors are now set on nailing him for the murder of his wife. Right. 
Yeah, and Alvin didn't even have a lawyer until a few weeks before the trial. You know, he was not on the best of terms with with Gustav, and uh, there'd been some some feuding over the, their father's estate, and Gustav hadn't hadn't visited the family after it moved to Mishawaka, so the family didn't come up with any money for hiring a, a defense attorney until the very last minute, and then part of the deal was that Gustav and some other lawyer would be the ones to wind up to to find the witnesses. Uh, the lawyer they hired was uh, Samuel Parker, who was a, a I'm sure he was a pretty expensive lawyer. He was, he was a, a well-known, very good lawyer, former state senator. They hired Samuel Parker, but, but they were trying to, to save a buck. So, yeah, so he's going to have to he's going to have to stand trial. And of course, then the prosecution is coming up with its theory of the case. And the prosecution's theory of the case is that there was a fight at the dinner table. There was a quarrel that escalated and that Albin grabbed the potato masher and that he chased Cecilia upstairs. And at some point during this quarrel upstairs, he smacked her on the head with a potato masher, creating, creating this, this wound. A wound that was deep enough that one of the doctors doing the autopsy could stick a finger into it. So he hit, hit her, knocked her unconscious, dragged her into the closet, and then, and I'm personally not sure exactly when he cut himself, but he must have, uh, must have cut himself at least partly, had done some of the, some of the, the self-inflicted wounds because there is blood downstairs. According to the prosecution, he goes downstairs with a tin can. He fills it up full of gasoline or kerosene, brings it back upstairs, pours it on the body, uh, the accelerant, and sets it on fire. And then the closet door would have to be closed. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty enormous fire if it's going to do that much damage to a body. So that is the, the prosecution theory. And then, of course, Alvin finishes cutting himself up or whatever and, and is, is feigning on, on consciousness. And, you know, either he drank the poison or Cecilia poisoned him in the coffee cup. Um, we don't know because there was no, there was no technology then. Forensics didn't know how to test for poison. So the trial begins. He's charged with murder. First degree. First yep. degree murder, right. And the prosecutor is, is a guy named Talbot. And he's just starting his career, but, but he's a very ambitious and able young man. Yeah, the Indianapolis Star had just run a feature on him. He was just elected prosecuting attorney, and he was very young, early 30s. And uh, immediately after Talbot took office, he uh, started cleaning up the gambling machines in South Bend and St. Joseph County, the gambling machines and uh, drinking on Sundays, uh, uh, that was against the law, and he started cleaning up that. So there was a little, uh, it was short, but it was a profile of him in the Indianapolis Star talking about what a great job he was doing. So this was in January, and by April, uh, late April is when the, the trial occurred. So he was he was a top-notch young attorney, and uh, the, the uh, uh, already mentioned Samuel Parker, defense attorney, so you know, these were these were two high-profile lawyers handling this case. The Henderson family, Cecilia's family, uh, was not actually at the trial, with the exception of Cecilia's mother, who showed up on the last day of the trial. And Jean, her sister, would have made an exceptional prosecution uh, witness. Uh, yeah, she's gone. And and the the supposition, you know, uh, uh, one of the things I discovered. One of the really cool things I discovered in doing this, I, I discovered a lot of, of cousins who I didn't know existed. And thankfully, due to the Internet and see these genealogy uh, websites, I was able to discover that. And I discovered Gene's grandson. And he's he's in his 70s. He lives in California. And I interviewed him. And he believes that Gene left that perhaps she went to to Kingsbury immediately 
but she headed out back to, to Nevada because her husband found gold. And she didn't stay very long. Um, she left again, but um, she was gone. And and what a witness she would have made. Now, she would have been a prosecution witness because she wouldn't have helped the defense at all. But she could have related all of these things that were happening that were leading up to up to the murder, up to the point when she left to, to get delivery. There are a lot of witnesses. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to go through all of them and their testimony. But the star witness, uh, I guess you might say, was uh, Elbin Ludwig himself. It's unusual, uh, right, when, when a defense attorney allows their client to, to testify. But in this trial, Ludwig took the stand to defend himself. So how did his, his testimony go? He, he's on the stand for, for hours. He started testifying in the morning. He was still testifying in the, in the afternoon. And I think I, I, think I wrote, and, and uh, uh, Eric, and you can check this. I think it was 86 pages in the, in the transcript are devoted to Alvin's testimony. And his story never changed. He told the story the way he, I want to say believed it to be true, but the way he wanted it to be told, he told the story that way, which is that he admitted choking her. Uh, of course, she had a weak heart, he said, but he admitted choking her, uh, and he didn't remember anything afterwards. And and one of the things that I found really interesting, I I have a copy of a six-and-a-half-page description of the crime that Elman wrote uh, on his uh, his first week in, in prison. And that was in the Indiana State Archives along with the, the trial transcript. And and his story it never changed. It was it was always the same. So either it happened that way or he convinced himself that it happened that way or he was a a very good liar who was able to uh, hold to that story. Was Talbot's cross-examination successful when all was said and done did the jury find him convincing at all well uh talbot was very good in questioning him talbot tripped him up a few times but one of the newspapers wrote out after alvin's testimony that it was believable now whether it was true or not but but it, it could be believable people who attended the trial who thought that he might get away with with manslaughter, which would be a, a, a lesser offense. Of course, he was charged with first-degree murder. But the judge, the, the testimony wraps up on a Thursday, Thursday night, and the closing statements are on a, on a Friday, and they wrap up the closing statements about 5 o'clock, and the newspapers were speculating about Case going to go to the jury on Saturday morning. And obviously, Judge Funk, um, Walter Funk, who was the circuit judge, uh, I, my, my feeling is Judge Funk was not impressed enough with Albin's defense. He sent the jury out at 5.30 that Friday night. The jury went out to decide the case. And it took them five hours to decide the case. And the decision was second-degree murder, which was... Um, he intended to in, intended to to kill her, but it wasn't premeditated, and that that that's probably fair. He was sentenced to life in prison. So he escaped execution, and he would eventually be incarcerated in the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. Correct? Yeah, yeah. I did a little research into white murders in indiana during that decade and and i say wife murders with uh, with quotation marks around that because that is a term that that newspapers used oh there was a wife murder in mishawaka or a wife wife murder in fort wayne and i'm thinking wow what a what a strange term that was that was used regularly so i did a little research into them uh, and i found about a dozen or so wife murders and it seemed like first degree murder they either hung you or or you wound up serving about 16 years. Even if you had a, a life sentence, you wound up serving only 15 or 16 years. And apparently that was that was pretty common in those days. Of course, they, they tried to appeal the verdict, right? And that was turned down. From an author's point of view, thank God that they appealed the case. 
because the trial transcript does not exist in St. Joseph County. Uh, we went to the St. Joseph County archives, which is in the warehouse district of South Bend, and we were told that felony cases were disposed of, uh, the records were disposed of after 55 years. And that, that really disappointed me. You know, I didn't know whether I had a book or a magazine article or just curiosity of, of family history. I didn't know what I had. But when the case was appealed and I had, I had bought through the internet, uh, mugshots, uh, from the Indiana State Archives. I have a mugshot of Alvin and I have a mugshot of, of Gustav and I was corresponding with uh, uh, an archivist at the Indiana State Archives who who handled the sale of the of the mugshots, and I said, you know, this case was appealed to the Indiana Supreme Court, and if you're ever in the Supreme Court archives and happen to find the trial transcript, I'd sure like to know. And uh, this this archivist, name of Michael Vetman, he he called me. It couldn't have been a week or uh, more than two weeks, probably only a week later, and said, Mr. Sosnicki, I've got it. And if that case hadn't been appealed, I would not have had a transcript, and without the transcript, I would not have had this book. So the appeal failed, but he was a pretty well-behaved prisoner, and eventually he was given parole. Yes, he he, he was after uh, after 16 years, and... Uh, Interestingly enough, it was a, an Elkhart policeman who at, at one point the policeman had, uh, uh, I think what the, I think the policeman was involved in, in rescuing his wife when he was choking her at a dance back when they lived in Elkhart. But it was a policeman who sponsored Alvin's parole and, and put him to work. And as best as I can tell from city directories that uh, Alvin went to work in the, in the restaurant business, he may have even had his own restaurant in Elkhart through the years. And he lived a, a fairly long life. He outlived his his wife considerably. He did not marry again, although one relative thought that he was married, but I can find no evidence that he married again. He died in 1954, is buried in an unmarked grave in a different cemetery from the rest of the Ludwigs. And there was no obituary in the Elkhart Truth newspaper um, we looked both online and we went to the library in Elkhart and, and searched through the microfilm and we could find no obituary. It, the only place where his death is noted is in a book that the funeral home that, that handled the body um, had a list of, of, of deaths that it handled and that was one of the deaths. That's the only way we knew about it. One of the jobs he had after he got out was as a door-to-door tea and coffee salesman, which which is pretty scary. Yeah, that's what one of the one of the relatives said. One of one of my new relatives said that, and uh, I think she said that her mother was scared to death when he came came to the neighborhood. You know, as she should be, especially if you if you've killed a killed an aunt or something. And I think that's what the relationship was. So, what do you believe really happened? Uh, do you think the prosecution's theory was was well constructed? I think Alvin Ludwig killed my great-grandmother. But I think there are a lot of questions that are unresolved. We don't know, for example, if the blood that was on the banister, on the door casings, we don't know whether Alvin left that blood there when he was going downstairs to fetch gasoline or whether that was from rescuers. You know, they're they're handling this, this bloody body uh, they could have had blood on their hands. So we don't know where that where that blood came from. We assume it came from Elbin, but of course there was no blood typing then. There was no DNA testing. So we think that was Elbin's blood. There, it's very unlikely it was Cecilia's blood, but we think that was Elbin's blood. But, you know, we don't know that. Uh, we don't know if there was poison in that coffee cup and the residue of the cup. You know, today... That cup would have been would have been tested to see whether there had been poison in it, if the iodine and glycerin, or if some other poison had been in the cup. So we don't know that. That would that would answer uh, a lot about it. Uh, of course, we don't know where Jean was for sure. We suspect that she most likely was in Nevada because her husband had discovered gold again. But but we don't know that for sure. I'm confident that Elvin killed her. 
but we just don't know for sure all the details how it happened. Other than that, a potato masher was involved at some point. Right. Well, so your book has just recently been released. Yes. August 11th was the official release date, although it's been available since mid-July. And of course, it's available online and in bookstores as well. Yes, it can be It can be ordered directly from the publishers, Kent State University Press. It can be found on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, all of the bookstores can order the book if they're not carrying it. Well, this has been just great. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Gary Suznicki. He is the author of The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.